0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, Episode 43, Rocky Hellas. Here it is, folks, finally, the last nation of Central Europe that I'm going to cover, Greece. And yeah, I know, Greece is more of a Southern European country, but if you strictly look at it as an East-West thing, then they definitely belong in this club. The nation is important to note, because it would, like its neighbors, fight to expand its boundaries, while at the same time its own strategic location and internal divisions would make it a target of Fascist Italy before we get to that point, let's go to where their own nationalist quest really got going. Now, stop me if you've heard this one. A minority people lived within the Ottoman Empire and decided that they didn't want to be subjects anymore and rose up in a burst of nationalism to create an independent and increasingly expansionistic state. That could be a lot of countries I've talked about, but Greece was an innovator and actually the first to do so. The Greeks, fired by ideals of liberty filtering in from the West, launched an uprising in 1821 that secured de facto independence in 1829. The young nation immediately fell into such internal chaos, though, that the great powers took it upon themselves to appoint a German noble as their king in 1833, and the nation became fully independent under Otto I. i be curious that all these new Balkan nations imported German nobles to act as their monarchs there was a rational explanation. Remember, Germany didn't unify until 1871, and before that it was a patchwork of minor principalities, all ruled by nobles. So it was just convenient to import a German. There were just so many of those families running around at the time. Now Otto brought with him Bavarian ministers, who asserted their own authority over the native Greek officials, which did not go over well with the local populace. For years, it would be a cadre of Germans who laid the groundwork of the Greek state from above. Which might not have been the best outcome for the average Greek, as the process was not terribly representative, and actual Greek concerns were not taken into account. This would have very long-term ramifications, as Otto and his team were looking to transplant whole cloth, a distinctly Western European style of bureaucratic government, onto a society that had developed in a different direction over the centuries. It was going to cause a lot of instability and culture clash over the next hundred odd years and beyond, as the system was alternatively reinforced and undermined depending on which way the winds were blowing. There was also the fact that most Greek-speaking peoples still lived outside the nation's borders, scattered about the Ottoman Empire. It also left the actual Greek kingdom, a small and stunted nation badly impoverished and at the mercy of its great power patrons to get along in the world. Expansion was seen not just as a nationalistic mission, it was a necessity for long-term survival. The Greeks' first attempt at this occurred during the Crimean War in 1853, when Russia invaded the Ottoman Empire. Greece encouraged an uprising in Epirus, a small region of modern Greece just south of Albania. A little problem with that. The British and French joined in this war on the Turkish side and helped put down the revolt. They tut-tutted the Greeks and advised them against getting involved, so A for effort, but it was all ultimately pointless. Greece was obliged to focus its energies inward again. They eventually returned to the issue of their unpopular King Otto. That he was basically a proxy for Britain and France didn't really endear him to the people. And his inability to produce an heir was seen as a bad sign, as the Greeks really wanted someone raised in the country, and not just one of his very German brothers, to inherit the throne. So they wound up getting rid of him in 1862 in a rather humdrum coup that saw him and his German ministers packed off. This time they brought in a Danish noble named George I, a guy who would be much more successful and enjoyed a 50 year reign. And yes, the Greeks on their own initiative looked towards a foreign monarch. Uh, Given the continuously divided state of their politics, the Greeks mutually preferred someone who could be trusted not to play favorites. The first success that Greece enjoyed in its bid to gather up the ethnic Greeks outside the kingdom came during that Russo-Turkish war of 1877-78 that was so disastrous for the Ottomans. In addition to their losses everywhere else, The Turks also had to give up the Greek region of Thessaly, centered on the city of Larissa. It also symbolically included Mount Olympus, putting it back in Hellenic hands after centuries of foreign rule. It was less than the Greeks had hoped for, but they had only managed to mobilize their army after the Turks had already been beaten, and so didn't have to actually fight in the war to get it. Still, there was a call to seize the so-called Great Island of Crete off Greece's southern coast. It was still in Ottoman hands, and an uprising there had galvanized hopes, both there and on the mainland, that it would unify with Greece. The great powers intervened yet again, though, and dashed Greek hopes to snag it. So, moving further into the Aegean was put on hold for the moment. To the north, prospective expansion became a murkier prospect. Uh, there were absolutely huge numbers of Greeks across the border, but they were increasingly mixed with Albanians, Turks, and South Slavs of all kinds. It wasn't going to just be the Ottomans that would be a problem, but the other emerging nations of the Balkans as well. And pressures were starting to build domestically as well. The factionalism of Greece never really went away, and their governments never lasted more than a year or two before falling apart. And the economy was only progressing in fits and starts. The nation was dependent on agriculture, which was not a great way to bring in wealth when you're a mountainous country. Expansion fell far below nationalistic hopes by the late 1800s, and it was apparent it wasn't going to be the answer for developing the nation's economy. An embarrassing bankruptcy in 1893 caused the nation's finances to be taken over by its foreign creditors. Think the International Monetary Fund, but with even less of a veneer of wanting to help you, and you have the idea. Things were looking rough and dramatic action was demanded to reverse the seeming decline that Greece was experiencing. King George opted to send his second son and namesake, Prince George, on a little boating trip with about 1,400 or so friends in February 1897. The Greeks had decided to take Crete in one swift shot and hopefully force the rest of the world to accept the change as a fait accompli. The great powers didn't take that line down, and the UK, France, Italy, and Russia all moved into the island. Their intent this time was to give the island autonomy within the Turkish Empire, but self-governing and under the protection of the powers. The Greeks might have been kicked off the island, but the public loved the attempt, and there was nothing more dangerous than a public that was really feeling itself. In April 1897, Greece decided to invade the Ottoman Empire by land. The war lasted all of a month, and the Greeks were thoroughly humiliated. 45,000 troops under the Crown Prince Constantine immediately fell apart upon first contact with the Turkish army, and only the intervention of the great powers, helpfully already on the scene, saved the nation from an occupation. These were bad years for the Greeks. Their economy was being run in distant capitals, its army was beaten, its political system was broken. There was a sense of nation, and a destiny to unite it. But there simply weren't the tools available to carry out the mission. A disassociation started to occur within the populace they were still patriotic Greeks. They simply didn't believe or have faith in their institutions. Which, given the circumstances, how could you blame them? The lack of opportunity at home, coupled with a population explosion, also drove a diaspora abroad, with hundreds of thousands heading across the Atlantic for America. But an almost equal number didn't emigrate so far. For many living on the eastern coasts and islands, the shores of western Anatolia were right there. That region of the Ottoman Empire had space enough for many Greeks willing to trade nations. And they did. They migrated in such numbers that the region around the city of Smyrna, modern Izmir, became dominated by Greeks, something that if you remember from episode 19, was going to have bloody consequences down the road. It was so extensive that the city of Smyrna itself grew to be over four times bigger than Athens. After decades of effort and misery, Greece proper was still something of a backwater in the Hellenic world. But if 1897 was the nadir of Greek fortunes, it was soon to see a reversal that could scarcely have been imagined. In Crete, the local government that was set up was extremely pro-Union with Greece, so regardless of who liked it or not, the island's inhabitants were ready to join up. Notably, a Cretan politician named Eleftherios Venizelos rose to a position of prominence as an ultra-nationalist leader, calling for union with the mainland. Remember him, he's real important. And Greece got into the same competition of secret agents and brigands the Bulgarians got into over Macedonia. The rivalry between the two peoples grew increasingly fraught, and Bulgaria became an enemy almost on the level of the Turks. By the time the coup of the Young Turks had rolled around in July 1908, Greece was in far better economic and military shape, while the Ottomans were totally falling apart. Bosnia was annexed by Austria, Bulgaria cut the last pretenses of being a dependent, Albania was in revolt. Venizelos and the government over in Crete openly declared themselves united with Greece. While the government in Athens did not accept the Union, having learned a lesson or two in caution, events were moving way too fast to control. The situation in Crete paralyzed the government as nobody wanted to pick up the responsibility of actually making a final decision on whether to accept the island or not. The foreign occupation of the island was set to end soon, and once the Turks came back, they probably weren't going to let a government which had just declared for breaking away remain in power. The army, meanwhile, picked up on the political paralysis and organized a conspiracy to insist on a series of demands on the government. They were dissatisfied with the weakness of the state, and wished it to be reformed to more effectively operate. And by operate, I mean work against the nation's enemies. An actual coup was not needed. The officers merely presented their demands in August 1909, and the government dissolved itself and a more compliant one was installed. Uh, This pattern of behavior will become depressingly familiar, but the army didn't have the answers either, and their hopes of real change didn't amount to anything concrete. Except they did make one leadership pick that was going to help define Greek history for years to come. They imported Venizelos over from Crete. That might sound weird, but bringing a Greek from outside the kingdom to be prime minister did have some logic to it. In their choice of kings, the Greeks had deliberately sought out someone from outside their native factions. Why not now the Cretan hypernationalist? He quietly accepted the deal on the condition the military back off the government in the meantime, And it speaks to his own personal credibility that they actually complied with that request. A year later, in the August 1910 elections, he stood for a seat in Athens, won easily, and was quickly installed as prime minister. Very quickly, the factions in parliament fell into two camps those that bought into the nationalist vision of a united Greece, both territorially and socially, or those that immediately were annoyed by an upgunned islander leapfrogging over all of them into high office. Venizelos recognized that the body was evenly split for and against him and convinced King George to dissolve Parliament after just a few months in December 1910. By that time, he had managed to organize a new political party, the Liberal Party, around himself and set up a nationwide network. Which also speaks to his reputation within the Kingdom of Greece that this outsider was able to do that in so short a time. His opponents sabotaged themselves by mostly boycotting the elections. Uh, their justification was that the dissolution was technically not legal, but in practice, this just meant that Venizelos scored an overwhelming majority in Parliament. And he didn't waste any time, either, launching reforms and legislation at a rapid clip. He strengthened the liberties of the Greeks, but he also inserted emergency powers for times when which those liberties could be suspended, which will also be important down the road. He also enjoyed the good fortune of the economy being in a boom period by this time. For once, Greece was stable both politically and economically. Which was good, because now it was time to fight the biggest war they had been involved in up to this point. Over the course of 1912, Greece allied itself with the other small states of the Balkans and in October 1912 invaded the Ottoman Empire. For Greece, the war was an unequivocal triumph. The Turks were caught out of position and couldn't defend the frontier with Greece. Greek troops marched north through Epirus towards southern Albania towards Salonika and southern Macedonia. Naval landings were made on all the remaining islands held by the Turks in the Aegean Sea, and the Greek navy prevented Turkish reinforcements from the Middle East from being shipped by sea to reinforce Europe. The main blow Greece suffered was the assassination of King George in March 1913. He had gone out for his daily walk when a man approached and shot him. No motive could be ascertained and the assailant, uh, mysteriously, died in police custody. This left his son, Constantine, to preside over the great victory in May 1913. And what a victory it was! Greece attained its modern borders, aside from a bit of North Aegean coastline that went to Bulgaria for the time being, and the Dodecanese islands which Italy had snatched up from the Turks the year previously. The population expanded from 2.7 million to 4.8 million, and its territory had doubled. The new king, Constantine, could finally live down that one time in 1897 he had lost so badly to the Turks, as in this new war he had been leading the Greek troops during the conquest of the city of Salonica. And fatefully, Venizelos made a number of new friends in the first half of 1913, that would become very important, very quickly. He traveled to Western Europe to consult with the British and French about resolving the war, and there started making proposals of maybe having Greece become a closer partner to the two nations. After all. They were looking at an expansion big enough to make Greece a regional power, and ergo a useful man on the ground in the Balkans. He especially impressed the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, one David Lloyd George, and while I hesitate to say those kinds of guys had real friends, they did hit it off. After the initial peace was signed off on, the Bulgarians did attempt that sneak attack on their now former allies in the summer, but the Second Balkan War lasted just a month, And didn't impact Greek fortunes immediately, though it did leave a seething Bulgaria off in its corner waiting for a time to get revenge. One consequence of the Balkan Wars I haven't really touched on a lot was the fate of Muslim refugees. The land taken had been Ottoman possessions, and their local elites were composed of either natives converted to Islam or Turks who had settled there. The dissolution of Turkish rule meant their privileged places were done for. And seeing as how there wasn't much for them in the new states, many migrated into Anatolia. Which hey, that's right where a lot of Greeks had already lived and where more had been migrating too. Well, surely the Muslim refugees wouldn't nurse a grudge. Oh, welp, they did. The Islamic migrants descended upon the Greek villages in Anatolia, terrorizing the locals into raising stakes and fleeing back to Greece. This drew Greece's attention eastward and after the great victory they now had a new goal to work towards. That isn't to say the Greeks themselves were enlightened in their treatment of minorities, either. Their fresh conquests to the north landed them sizable minority groups, and the officials sent to govern the new lands had to deal with a multitude of peoples they had no knowledge of. The city of Salonika, the great prize of the northern frontiers, was itself a mostly Turkish and Jewish city, and Greek bureaucrats upon arriving there realized they weren't in Athens anymore. There was little time, though, to acclimate to the change in circumstances, as World War I broke out just a year after the Balkan Wars had wound down. Greece initially attempted to remain neutral, though there was a strong pro-Entente sentiment. King Constantine was actually married to Kaiser Wilhelm's sister, so it was assumed he was pro-German. Nevertheless, he rebuffed his brother-in-law's proposal of an alliance, pointing out how exposed the many coasts of Greece were to the Entente navies. But he did operate with the belief that Germany would win out in the end. He had attended the German Military Academy as a youth, as had many officers in the army and even some figures in the nation's ministries. They composed a faction that were sympathetic to Germany and didn't want to cross them. Venizelos, on the other hand, had years of working with the Entente powers, going back to his Cretan days. He saw the Entente naval dominance as a guarantee that the Mediterranean would be their lake and that they could cover Greece if they joined the war. A big boost to the Entente cause was the Turkish Empire's decision to join the war allied with Germany. Dreams of taking back Istanbul and restoring it to its old Greek name of Constantinople danced through the imaginations of the Nationalists. And all those stories of abuses against Greeks in Anatolia over the past year could be avenged. The Nizelos had made inquiries at the start of the war of maybe Greece joining with the Entente, but they had actually turned him down, not seeing a need for Greece to get involved. The Turks joining in November 1914 changed that thinking, and in January 1915 they approached Venizelos with an offer that he accepted, but the king did not. The plan was to swap land over to Bulgaria, thereby bringing them into the war also on the Entente side, and in compensation, Greece would get a big chunk of western Anatolia. The king saw this as a bad move, giving up land to a rival in exchange for compensation that would have to be fought for and was terribly exposed if the Turks decided to come back in the future. Plus, the big prize was Istanbul and the Bosphorus, which the Russian Tsar had already called dibs on. Venizelos and the king were in a standoff, and after the Entente requested Greek aid in the Gallipoli campaign, conflict broke out into the open. The king overruled Venizelos and opted to continue remaining neutral, which, given how the Gallipoli campaign turned out, was a really great call. Venizelos, though, resigned in a huff on March 7, 1915. Politics in the country now openly became Constantine versus Venizelos, with the two battling it out in the newspapers and in public opinion. In June, a fresh election was held that brought Venizelos back into the premiership, and this time neither figure even pretended to like or work with the other. When Bulgaria entered the war against Serbia, Venizelos tried to offer Greece's aid in their fight, but the king shot the idea down and dismissed Venizelos. The move didn't save him from the Entente interfering though. That same month they landed troops in Salonica, turning Greece's newly won northern frontier into a war zone. This only further drove the king to be more obstinately neutral. The Entente dangled the island of Cyprus in front of him, but he still didn't take the bait. That's when the Entente stopped playing nice. They started taking over islands in the Aegean, including Corfu, which became Serbia in exile. More Entente troops started pouring in, and suddenly northern Greece was an encampment of British, French, Italians, Serbs, and Russians. Local Greeks were even recruited into volunteer formations to man the front, and the Germans started to get very annoyed with Constantine. In May 1916, they delivered him an ultimatum that a fort on the Bulgarian frontier that the Greek government still controlled should be turned over to Bulgaria. Constantine complied, and this immediately set off the Entente against him. They delivered an ultimatum of their own, demanding the Greek army be disbanded, and its government become managed by the Entente. With no way to resist without destroying the nation, Constantine gave in. Things didn't go the Entente's way, though, as the Greek public swung hard against this level of foreign intervention. And while the army was dissolved, those troops and guns didn't just disappear. There wasn't really anywhere for them to go, and they coalesced into two camps, one loyal to Constantine, the other to Venizelos. On September 25, 1916, Venizelos declared a provisional government based on the parts of Greece occupied by the Entente and defended by what army units had defected to him. The Entente tightened the screws to Constantine and blockaded Athens from the sea. On December 1, 1916, a group of 3,000 Entente troops landed in Piraeus, the port that serviced Athens. They intended to raid a munitions depot, but found Loyalist Greek troops ready for them. The Greeks managed to repel the Entente, and the battle set off a frenzy of retribution among the Loyalists in Athens against anyone suspected of supporting Venizelos. Mob justice ruled Athens for days. Now Greece entered into an informal civil war. The tactics of guerrillas and bandits that had been used against the Turks in Macedonia were now turned on each Greek faction as the north and south went at each other. By summer 1917, though, the king was clearly losing the struggle, and he no longer wanted to carry on the fight. He went into exile on June 15th, and left his son Alexander in charge to rule. Venizelos had triumphed, and returned to the premiership of a united Greece. But one problem he failed to recognize was the extent to which he had subordinated Greece's sovereignty and interests to that of the Entente. Of course, he thought he was acting in his nation's best interests. But a lot of people saw him and his government as a pawn of foreign interlopers who had humiliated the country yet again. This was going to cause legitimacy issues Greece was never able to overcome during our time period. But for the meantime, there was still World War I. Remember that big old war happening on the frontier. Fortunately, it was almost over, and Greece narrowly got to claim a spot at the victors' table. They acquired a hall. The entire region of western Anatolia around Smyrna almost all of the Ottomans' remaining European land excepting Istanbul, and Bulgaria's little strip of land connecting them to the Aegean. Venizelos's Entente connections paid off, and now was the time to collect. Only, you already know how it went if you followed the British episodes. They almost collected, but it all slipped through their fingers at the last minute. I won't go over the full campaign again in detail, but I will provide a refresher as the disaster shaped Greece for years to come. The Treaty of Sevres secured the new land for Greece at the expense of the mostly defunct Ottoman Empire. And even before the treaty was signed off on, Greek troops landed in Smyrna in May 1919, which was at the same time that Mustafa Kemal was rallying Turkish resistance against anyone invading Anatolia, and also when he began his bid to finish off the Ottoman government and establish a distinctly Turkish one. Greece spent a year and a half making slow but steady advances into the Anatolian interior. Turkish resistance was more in the form of skirmishes and guerrilla actions at first, but as time went on, their numbers swelled on the de- and the defense stiffened. Still, Venizelos pressed his generals to advance further and further to try and bring Kemal to the table and accept the Greek gains. But then, that pesky monkey that King Alexander kept as a pet went and bit his master, which caused sepsis to set in and resulted in his death. He had died on October 25th, 1920 less than a week before the parliamentary elections scheduled for November 5th. This was critical to the fortunes of Venizelos and his supporters, as now the election became a referendum as to what would happen to the throne, seeing as how Alexander was childless. The Greek people at this point really didn't care for the seemingly endless wars, which had been going on and off now since late 1912. And of course, Venizelos's plentiful enemies didn't need an excuse to vote against him, The elections were crushing to his liberal party, and he took the hint and left Greece for Paris. The new government held a vote in December, and a majority of Greeks elected to welcome Constantine back to the throne. He accepted and returned to Athens from his own exile in Switzerland. The great powers, including Greece's main backer in the Turkish expedition, the UK, were not at all happy about the change in leadership. They hated Constantine for all the trouble he had caused in World War I. And so started backing off their support for Greece and their claims. And it wasn't like the return of the king healed any old wounds either. With Venizelos out of the way, the factions that deposed him immediately turned on each other. Constantine was not enthusiastic about the war in Anatolia either. He knew the people were fed up and didn't see a good way to wind the conflict down. But to turn back now would make it look like Venizelos was the only effective Greek leader, and he couldn't have that. Constantine gave the go-ahead for an advance on Ankara, which was the capital of Kemal's government, and if captured, would hopefully force him to surrender. The Greeks spent most of the first half of 1921 advancing deep into the Anatolian interior. It was rough and hostile terrain with few roads, and in summer was burning hot. At the end of their supply lines, the Greeks attempted to break the last Turkish line of defense before Ankara at the Battle of Saqqara. The battle lasted three weeks, from August 23rd to September 13th. Both sides were in danger of being beaten, as the Turks still suffered from shortages of equipment and ammunition. But the Greeks faltered in their attacks, and the order to retreat was sounded. The Greeks resorted to digging in to resist the eventual Turkish counterattack. Greeks also tried to work through the Great Powers to make some kind of deal, but Kemal was adamant about the Greeks leaving Anatolia. This was unacceptable, as the Greek army had been checked, but not definitively beaten. The great Powers, though, were rapidly losing interest in the whole situation. And didn't want to get more drawn in than they already were, an international force was holding the Turkish straits that divided Europe and Asia, but they didn't want to commit to aiding the Greeks in Anatolia. Kemal built up his resources carefully over the course of that year of stalemate and on august twenty sixth nineteen twenty two finally launched his counteroffensive. The Greek army by this point was totally demoralized by spending a year dug into a hostile foreign country, and, as evidenced by their own inaction, the troops had realized they weren't going to win the war. They broke in a matter of days, and by early September had retreated to Anatolia's western coastline, where they quickly took to their ships and retreated to the island of Chios just off the coast. Despite knowing in advance that they would have to evacuate, that the Greek population there were in terrible danger of retribution, local Greek officials had made no preparations for getting their Anatolian fellows out. A rather cynical explanation was provided from an official in Smyrna, who said it was better they remained and died in Anatolia rather than leaving as refugees to Athens, where they would undoubtedly cause political trouble. Which just goes to show how the Greater Greece idea played in practice. The Turks arrived in Smyrna on September 9th, and revenge began in earnest. Thousands of ethnic Greeks fled as refugees, but tens of thousands were killed by the Turkish army over the next couple of years. The crowds that so crammed Smyrna's docks became target practice for Turkish riflemen and machine gunners. A great fire started on September 13th that burned most of the city. The history of the Greek people in Anatolia, which stretched back as long as the Greeks as a people had existed, was coming to an end. The Greek army on Chios was furious at the embarrassment, at the failure of the government, and also the king to make a settlement. They sent an ultimatum to Athens in late September, demanding the government dissolve itself and the king abdicate. Both conditions were accepted, and Constantine went into exile again with his next eldest son. George II taking the throne. But the real power would be with the army now as the troops were already moving into Athens. The soldiers called for Venizelos to return, but he casually declined, not wanting to be too associated with a government dominated by the military. He did represent Greece in the final negotiations with Kemal's government and signed off on the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923 that finally ended the war and confirmed the land borders that Greece has to this day. But he did so well outside Greece itself. The military government, meanwhile, rounded up six patsies that they blamed the so-called Great Disaster on and had them shot. They were all high officials and included one former and one current prime minister that had been serving under Constantine and the army chief of staff, so not small fish at all. The obvious injustice of the executions was a big reason why Venizelos stayed the hell away from these guys. And as you might expect, the arbitrary executions didn't bring the nation any closer together. Factionalism continued, worse than ever before, if that was somehow possible. And a demographic earthquake was about to hit the nation as well. I talked about the Turkish army murdering those tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of Greek civilians in Anatolia. Well, that still left hundreds of thousands more, and they weren't safe, and the Turkish government didn't want them. So, as part of the Treaty of Lausanne, it was decided there would be a population swap. Starting in early 1923, million ethnic Greeks were transferred out of Turkey and crammed into Greece, with less than 400,000 Turks being transferred the other way. This was a huge number of people for a nation so small, and was also understandably a disaster for the forced migrants as most had to uproot from the only homes they had known and settle in what was a foreign land that was in no way prepared to welcome them. As a result, their settlement was a haphazard affair, with desperate communities from all over Anatolia blanketed over Greece. By the time the dust settled, a fifth of Greece's population would be composed of refugees. For decades moving forward, they would keep to largely separate communities, seen as outsiders among the old Greeks. They talked in strange dialects, they ate different foods, and had different customs from a land that had separated from the Ottoman Empire a century before. They also kind of broke Greek politics, as the old loyalist factions opposed to Venizelos and his people were mostly from the parts of the country that had been within the pre-1913 borders. Those older factions already were having trouble making inroads with the populations conquered during the wars, and that problem was compounded even more when a giant wave of refugees washed up on their shores. Venizelos managed to get a second political win from their appearance after a populace fatigued with his leadership had forced them out back in 1920. Their presence also killed the dream of Greek expansion. There would still be small border disputes, and they still wanted the Italians to give them the Dodecanese Islands but major territorial expansion was done. The overwhelming vast majority of Greeks in the Old World now lived within a single boundary. It was a fraught but exciting time for Greece. The influx of new citizens expanded the economy, and coupled with the years of peace after a decade of conflict meant that the nation's intellectual and cultural life started to flourish. Granted, by 1923, the nation had been impoverished by the expense of the constant wars. So, there was a lot of room for growth compared to where they started from, but it did mean that for daily life in Greece, conditions did see an improvement through the 1920s. I specified daily life because political life was only going to further break down in the mid 1920s. The largely completed Greek state by 1923 now faced the task of sorting itself out. The army, for all its reverses in the past couple years, was largely in the driver's seat of political life. Too bad that at this point, they too were factionalized. And with Constantine's final removal, the throne became less of a factor, so it became a competition of primacy within the army rather than the status of the monarchy. With the army having already launched a successful coup, there wasn't any putting the genie back in the bottle. It was the wing of the officer corps that supported Venizelos and had broken from the monarchy that had seized power. And they had to beat back a counter-coup by the Loyalist faction in October 1923. The failure of that uprising resulted in King George II going into exile and the victorious officers demanding the monarchy be abolished. Venizelos returned to the Premiership briefly in early 1924 and tried to rein in the generals, but they weren't taking orders from him and he resigned after only a few weeks in office. A special constituent assembly was convened that carried out the army's wishes and abolished the monarchy. Greece was now a republic. George II would become a flag for the new regime's enemies to rally around, but he's going to be out of the picture for some time to come. The removal of the monarchy unfortunately did not solve any of the problems of stability or legitimacy. In fact, the manner in which it happened made it way worse. Prime Ministers through 1924 and 25 would only last a few months in office before their coalitions fell apart, and the government was paralyzed. The army stepped in again and on June 24, 1925, they installed Theodoros Pangalos, first as prime minister and from July 1926 as self-declared president. He immediately dissolved the republic and assumed dictatorial powers, but his talents as a politician were severely lacking and he antagonized the whole establishment. In August 1926, a rival general named Georgios Kondylis launched his own coup and opposed Pangalos. While he acted as prime minister until December Everyone made it clear they weren't going to back him as dictator, and he reintroduced the Republic. The political factions took a collective breath and agreed to chill out and work together, realizing how close of a call they just had. Pagalos had acted with a lighter touch or had been a better political manager. They might have had to endure dictatorship for a lot longer. They rallied around Alexandros Zymus as Prime Minister for a year and a half, but over time the same old splintering reappeared. But Venizelos appeared back on the scene for one last go-round. By now getting on in his years, he presented himself as the only statesman accomplished enough to put the government back on steady ground. The people responded to the message, and he won the biggest landslide of his career in August 1926. This time he eschewed the aggressive foreign policies of his younger years, and instead sought to reform Greece internally. He established a social security system, finally finished the work of clearing the countryside of bandits, Launched land reclamation projects, made farm reforms. The kind of things that read really boringly in history books, but to the actual people who had to live there during these times, were very welcome actions. And given that Greece had gone through almost ten years of sporadic war, massive demographic dislocation, and years of military coups, boring was terrific. He also worked to patch up relations with the neighbors. He reconfirmed friendships with Yugoslavia and Romania. Reconciled with Italy after their 1923 attempt to snatch up Corfu, and almost amazingly established a friendly working relationship with Turkey. Only the Bulgarians refused to break bread, but they really weren't in a position to be threatening anymore. There would be a cost, though, specifically with him normalizing relations with Turkey. With a fifth of Greece's population now refugees from that new state, they had not forgotten or forgiven the Turks for what they had suffered. They had supported Venizelos. Because he had traditionally been an expansionist, and they figured he was their best chance to either get their old homes back or at least extract revenge. Now they realized that wasn't happening, and there wouldn't be much of a reason to support him in the future. But those were storm clouds for another day, as Venizelos had put Greece on a more secure footing just in time for that 1929 economic crash to hit, which is where I will hit pause on this particular corner of the world for now. So, yeah. That was Central Europe. You've really picked up on some reoccurring issues that are going to cause trouble for everybody down the road. Politics were endemically chaotic across the region. Internal violence was the norm. And the majority of attempts at democracy ended in coups, installing a strongman to run the country, sometimes based on monarchy, sometimes not. Then there were the constant grudges over patches of land and the status of minorities. And since most of these countries were still mostly rural and could only be described as partially industrialized, They lacked the economic resources to modernize their countries. The takeaway I want you to get for the broad region is that this area was terribly vulnerable, as there were no effective protectors of the myriad of small states carved out after Versailles. The failure of the great powers to secure their own creations would doom the region to squabbling and predation in the future. And for all the problems of the 20s, which saw so much political instability and disillusionment, That decade was a time of relative non-interference from the big neighbors to the east and west. That situation wasn't going to last forever, and Germany, Italy, the Soviets during the 30s and early 40s were going to show just how inadequate the steps of nation-building and creating a lasting peace had been in the region. And now that that's all squared away, let's take a break from Europe. See what's happening with the rest of the world. Okay, well, that's kind of a trick, because we're leaving Europe but in a world still dominated by empires, we won't be getting away from the Europeans themselves. Next week, we'll move on to the unfortunately massive British Empire, starting with an episode on its dominions, which were basically the closest thing to offspring an empire can have. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.